Good morning. It's good to be back. I want to start by giving a shout out to Tricia Scribner for filling in for me last week. Um, I, uh, I know you enjoyed her. She's a, an excellent teacher. Um, as I was um, walking up here, I got some news that Nikki Jackson, one of our mentors, is being taken to the hospital by Jennifer Roycroft. I know no information beyond that, but let's pray for her before we do anything else, shall we? Father, uh, I thank you for this morning. Your word tells us that if there are any sick among you, we're to pray for them. And so we want to do that right now as a group of women that love Nikki Jackson dearly. And we pray that you might, um, I don't even know how to pray for Nikki at this point, Father. So our prayer at this moment is that you would just be so present and real to both of them that you'll help them to um, uh, be calm and know the peace of God. We pray that they'll get some answers, that they'll get to see a doctor quickly, that things will be assessed quickly. And, oh, Father, can we just pray for uh, an, easy, an easy fix? At this point, uh, we ask for something simple that can be treated and she can be returned to us quickly. And, Lord, all we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I once heard a story about a woman that came to abide. This was several years ago. I think it was during um, our early years. She was new in the area, and she was visiting Hickory Grove, and so she decided to come to abide. And so on her first visit with us, she walked into our gathering place without knowing anyone. She sat down at a table next to two women, said hello, and began to attempt to make conversation. She then proceeded to lean down and retrieve something from her purse or a bag that was on the floor. And when she came up, the two women were gone. They had gathered their plates and moved to another table, presumably to sit with their friends, leaving her to sit there alone. She would make a beeline for the bathroom, run into a stall, and cry. Judging from conversations that I have had with women over the years, I suspect that there are other women who have come here and felt alone. Now I want to clarify, I realize that things can be misinterpreted that people can be oversensitive. I know that there can be perfectly good reasons and explanations for things. I know that. I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I also realize that there are places and events where you might expect something like that to happen. But should you expect it here? Should a woman coming to abide be concerned with how she looks or whether she will fit in? And if so, what exactly are the prerequisites? Is it possible for us to claim to be a gospel-loving group and at the same time show partiality? 
And what is the difference between showing partiality and just wanting to be around your friends? Is there ever a time where showing partiality is acceptable? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 1? James chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 26. Our focus will be on chapter 2, but we're going to start by backing up at 26. James 1.26, no, I'm sorry, 27. James 1.27 says this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This morning, we are going to look at an age-old and an ongoing problem of showing partiality or favoritism or prejudice. It all depends on what Bible translation you're using. Our goal today is to do three things. We want to define the problem. We want to talk about why, why it is such a problem. And then we want to talk about how to correct it. Now, um, after my children became believers, actually before that, I found that the best way for me to deal with any problems we were having was to reason together with them in God's word. And so I would make them sit at my kitchen table, I would open my Bible, and then I would try to explain to them and teach them what God's perspective was. Okay, James is going to do a very similar thing with us here. Instead of just saying, okay, stop doing that, he is going to sit us down at the kitchen table, so to speak, and he's going to make a very strong case for why we should not show partiality. 
okay? Now, uh, before we get into all of that, let's start by describing what it is not, okay? So number one on your paper, what favoritism isn't, is this. Favoritism is not the same as giving honor to whom honor is due, okay? And I have a passage on your paper. It is Romans 13, 7. It says this, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenues to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, now let's pretend that the governor comes to visit us and he wants to see what abide is all about. And so he comes in and I take the microphone and I introduce him. I thank him for coming. I suggest to him that he be the first one to go through our breakfast line. And then I bring him over to a special table just for him. Okay, that is not favoritism. All right, that is giving honor to whom honor is due. He is our governor. He is in a position of authority over us, and we are honoring his position. Okay, if you go into a courtroom and you are told to rise for the judge as he enters, not favoritism. That is giving honor to whom honor is due. Let's say that you're sitting in a Sunday school class or church or even a doctor's office, and uh, an elderly person walks in and there are no seats available. And so you give your child the eye, and they know that look, okay? And so they quickly get up from their chair, and they offer it to the elderly person. Okay, that is not favoritism. That's good manners, okay? That's a child that is being taught to obey this verse, to give honor to whom honor is due, respect to who respect is due. Okay, that's the first thing it's not. Here's the next thing, number two. Favoritism is not the same as having healthy, godly friendships at church with whom you are closer with some than others. There are going to be certain personalities and histories with people that are going to make it so that you have a closer relationship with some people more than others. All right, that is not favoritism. Now, here's the thing. Some of you may be calling that favoritism, and it's not, okay? The concept of friendship is all through the Bible, and good, close friends are a gift, are, are, are said to be a gift. All right, now you might be thinking, but if that's the case, then what was wrong with the example that you gave in the beginning? Why is it so bad about leaving someone new to go sit with friends? I mean... The only time we get to see each other is Tuesday morning. What's, what's, what's so bad about that? That's a good question. And that's going to bring us to our explanation of favoritism. So what is favoritism? Let's go back to the passage. You look at verse 1. My brothers show no partiality. Now you could substitute the word favoritism there because we're going to be using both of those interchangeably. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, or, honey, you stay put here while I go over here to a more desirable table. 
Okay, I added that one, but you get where we're going. Number, verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? All right, here's the next thing I have on your paper. I have the Greek word for favoritism. It is prosopol, prosopolepsia. And it literally means face-taking, to receive face. It is the idea of judging by appearance and on that basis giving special favor and respect. All right, the Greek word is actually based on a Hebrew word that meant to receive the face of someone. Okay, it meant to show partiality, to discriminate on the basis of the face of the matter, the mere externals. Okay, and not on the basis of the heart. It was making a distinction or judging based on something external or preconceived. One of the biggest internet sensations was a Scottish woman that appeared on a British talent show. She walked out onto stage wearing what looked like a nice Sunday school Easter dress. Her hair was nothing fancy, had a little bit of gray in it. She didn't appear to be wearing any makeup. She didn't have dazzling white teeth that you are used to seeing on TV. And as they were showing her body, they were also showing shots of the audience and the judges. And there was snickering and, and chuckling, and you could sense their disapproval. And then she began to sing, I dreamed a dream. And with that, the career of Susan Boyle was launched. Her audition tape became the most watched YouTube video of the year. Pierce Morgan was the first judge to speak. And listen to what he said. Quote, without a doubt, that was the biggest surprise I have had in three years of this show. I am reeling from shock. Now, why was that? Why was he so surprised? Why was he so shocked? He said everyone was laughing at her at the beginning. Why? Because she didn't look the part. That audience had some preconceived idea of what somebody successful on that stage was going to look like, and it wasn't her. Everyone in that auditorium, or most everyone in that auditorium, had made a quick judgment call based on her appearance. Here's our next point, number three. It is a quote from Legan Duncan. He said this, favoritism is a self-serving discrimination that is based upon shallow externals. The favoritism that James writes about is not only based on shallow outward appearance, it has selfish motives. All right, I want you to look at verse 4. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, what does he mean, evil thoughts? Well, for one thing, selfish thoughts. Okay, self-centered thoughts. You're making decisions and judgment calls based on how it will benefit you. All right, and that's key, because if you are being prejudiced or partial, guaranteed there will be some benefit or some perceived benefit involved. 
Okay, one writer put it this way, partiality is treating a person better or worse than he deserves for selfish reasons. Okay, now let me give you an example. Let's say that you choose to sit down at a table with a bunch of friends rather than the new girl that looks a little flustered and she's uh, sitting there all alone and you think to yourself, you know what, I'm going to sit next to my friends. I mean, uh, I've had a hard morning. This is going to be more enjoyable. And besides, you know, I just never know what to say. It's always so awkward with new people. Okay, yes, that's, that's, a very, that's a very good possibility. But here's the thing. Your intentions are self-serving. Okay, you have discriminated based on shallow externals. You've treated someone worse than he deserves for selfish reasons. James is going to give us an example of favoritism that he likely witnessed in his church. Verse 2 says this, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over here or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. The people in this example are paying special attention to the rich guy while ignoring the poor guy. I um, have a son in full-time ministry, and he will be the first to tell you that it is nice to have a rich guy involved in your ministry. They buy things. They pay for stuff. Now, on the other hand, you've got the poor, poor guy, and he costs you. He needs things. You know, he's the one that needs a ride or he needs assistance with things. And so quite naturally, the people in this scenario, they're giving special attention to the rich guy because the rich guy would benefit them, or so they thought. They're paying special attention to one while ignoring the other. Here's our next point, number four. Favoritism is paying special attention to some while ignoring others. Now you might be thinking, okay, but what if you go to a really big church like this one? Or you come to a big Bible study like this one? And I mean, I can't possibly be attentive to everybody I see on any given Sunday or Tuesday. And it may come across like I'm ignoring people. Well, I, I agree. That can definitely be a, a, a drawback or a hardship with a big church. But um, that's not really what James is addressing here. Okay, James is confronting an action or an attitude where people were more attentive and they're more affectionate to a person that based on their outward appearance would be more inclined to benefit them and ignoring or mistreating a person that likely would not. I have on your handout the dictionary definition for a clique. It reads, a small group of people with shared interests or other features in common who spend time together and do not readily allow others to join them. Now, that sounds a lot like the definition for favoritism, doesn't it? Clicks in the churches are, are a common complaint. 
I've heard of it often over the years. And they can be um, just one of many ways that our discrimination is manifested. Skin color, race, age, gender, politics, financial status. They're just a few of the many ways that we discriminate and cluster together, not to mention some of the new stuff. Um, schooling preferences, the wine drinkers versus the non-wine drinkers, the pierced, the meat eaters, the vegans, the list goes on. <laughs> if you have watched or if you read or watch the news, you know that discrimination and division among the American population has become one of the greatest concerns among our nation. Favoritism and partiality are a fundamental and an excruciating part of the American fabric these days, which brings us to number five. Favoritism, desiring to attract those who will most benefit us, is a natural human response. We do this easily. We do this naturally. All right, that's the problem. Let's talk about why, why it's such a problem. And James is going to give us an example of it in verse 6, but let's first look back at verse 1. Take a look at that. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. All right, here's our next point, and it's a very obvious one. It's number 6. The Christian faith is entirely incompatible with partiality. Right, discriminating based on shallow externals, paying special attention to someone while ignoring others, treating someone better or worse for special purposes. Okay, all of that, all of that is incompatible with the Christian faith. Believers are to have no part in favoritism. And James is going to help us to understand why. Now, if you write in your Bibles, you might want to circle the phrase Lord of glory. And you could write the word deity next to that because this is a striking term of God's awesomeness and his majesty and emphasizing that being embodied in Jesus. Is James saying that his half-brother, Jesus, was deity. James is absolutely saying that, okay? Now, why would that be such a big deal concerning favoritism? Here's our next point, number seven. The Bible emphasizes that God is not partial. Okay, God is not partial. God is not in heaven saying, wow, look at that guy. He's got white skin and blue eyes, and he's so well-groomed. I'm going to answer his prayers. Okay? He's not looking at a woman and saying, wow, you know, she's so attractive, and she has her masters. She's going to do great things for the kingdom of God. Okay? No, 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 no. That is not how God works. Not at all. He is no respecter of persons. I want you to keep your finger in James, but turn with me back to 1 Samuel 16. Okay, we're staying in James, but um, turn back to 1 Samuel 16. This is probably uh, the most famous passage on the subject. 
1 Samuel 16 is the chapter where Samuel, he has been sent out to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king. And he has just watched a parade of fine strapping young men strolled out in front of him. We're going to pick up at verse 7. It says this, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, God is not wired like us. We look at the outward appearance and we size them up and we judge them. God does not. First of all, he's not impressed with those things. He's not impressed with our money or our grooming or our size or our bank accounts. They are non-issues to him. God looks on the heart. A Christian should not show favoritism or partiality because God does not. All right, that's not all. Let's turn back to James. I want us to look at verse 5 at James. James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, in the case of James, he is addressing a scenario that was common in his day. Okay, he was most likely using an example of something that he had observed firsthand. And he says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? and the ones who drag you into court. Now, he's making a generalization about something that he was watching in his day. Now, he's not saying that just because a man was rich that he was necessarily corrupt and oppressive, but he is making an observation about that the, as a group, okay, they, it was a group, they were generally, it was generally the rich that would oppress you and drag you into court and blaspheme the name of Jesus. And so James says, why are you so smitten with them? Why do you value that? Why as a group do you elevate them the way that you do? I have a quote on your papers that summarizes this nicely. It's from Sinclair Ferguson. And he said, it is generally true that people who have power in the world employ that power to marginalize the church of Jesus Christ. I found myself reading that, and I thought, boy, this really reminds me of our current obsession with celebrity. You know, you put a celebrity in the room, and everybody's giddy. And James would say, why do you honor that? Do they not exploit you? Do they not use their money and their fame to mock you and profane the very name that you proclaim? Now, in James' day, not all, as in James' day, certainly not all celebrities do that, but a lot do. Francis Chan has an excellent sermon on YouTube where he teaches on this chapter. And uh, as a part of that lesson, he shows a video that he secretly made 
where he is standing at the side of a table and people are walking up and saying hello and greeting him and talking to him. And off to the side of him at the end of the table is a young teenager and he's dressed like a teenager, kind of got a punk look going on. And all these people are coming up to Francis Chan and, um, and, and, nobody, and nobody speaks to this kid. Nobody acknowledges him. It's as if he's invisible. At one point, there is one man, I think he was an elder, that goes over and shakes his hand. And it's a hard thing to watch because all I could think of was I would be one of those people gushing over the celebrity and ignoring that teenager. Here's our next point. When we favor the rich and famous... Above the poor and marginalized, we do the very thing the world does. We act like the world. Now, I want to be clear, James is not suggesting that we disrespect the rich or anything like that, okay? That's not the point. I want you to look at verse 5. He said, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Now, most of the believers in Jesus at the, at the, at the beginning, they were poor and the downtrodden. Okay, but next to this verse, you might want to pencil the word gospel because James is reminding them of how the gospel works. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I read an article in Forbes magazine that was entitled, You Are Judged by Your Appearance. And the author, he was actually addressing another article that uh, uh, was about discrimination in the workplace and about some actual studies done at various universities that show how your outward appearance affects the amount of money you get paid or whether you're hired at all. He listed seven. He said tall people get paid more money. Fat people get paid less. Blondes get paid more money. People who work out get paid more money. Women who wear makeup and handsome people get paid more. Now, you, if you were exceedingly attractive woman and you were trying to get a job that was considered to be very masculine, then that might be a problem. But seven different studies, and they were all basically saying the same thing. The better looking you are, the more money you will make. You see, that's what the world tells us. The world tells us that attractive people get the advantage, that rich people get the advantage, that powerful people get the advantage. In the world, everything is based on works and merit. And James says to them, that is not how the gospel works. That is nothing like the gospel. James explains that with the gospel, God has chosen, God has chosen the poor, the spiritually impoverished, impoverished people that have absolutely nothing to bring to the table. God has chosen to give the kingdom to them. Here's our next point, number 10. The gospel is not partial. The gospel is not partial. 
Matt Chandler actually put it this way. He said, favoritism is anti-gospel. Anti-gospel. You see, one of the reasons that cliques are such poison in the church is because they do not reflect the gospel. Okay, the gospel says, come all who are weary. A clique says, whoa, wait, wait, hold it right there. You may not be what we have in mind. The gospel says, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. The gospel says, come no matter what your skin color, no matter what your race, no matter what your age, no matter how much you weigh, no matter what your financial status is, come and be reconciled to God. You see, the problem is favoritism doesn't say that. The message that a clique relays or discrimination relays is that the gospel is partial. The gospel isn't for everyone. It's only for special people. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for his friends or people that were like him. He died for the widow and the beggar and the tax collector and the prostitute. He died for his enemies. The gospel turns everything upside down. When we discriminate against people because of the color of their skin or their politics or their age or just because they are not like us, we are anti-gospel. But James is not done with us. He says in verse 8, he has another specific reason uh, why partiality is wrong. Take a look at it, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Here's our next point. Partiality contradicts the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. All right, the royal law, according to Scripture, is summed up with the two great commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, and Jesus would elaborate on, on what we commonly refer to as the golden rule, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love God and treat people like you want to be treated. That kind of love will mark the life of the believer. Okay, it's impossible to show partiality and favoritism when we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The standard will never fail us. Believers are to be marked by their love, not their partiality. Okay, we're to be marked as people keeping the royal law and not as transgressors. Now, I want you to go back up to the definition of a click at the top of your papers and write two words. I want you to write the word intentional and then the word unintentional. Sadly, in some churches, people are very intentional in starting cliques, but sometimes cliques start unintentionally. Sometimes you have a group of people and they've just been together for a long time. You know, they've watched people come and go. They've watched pastors come and go. They've weathered some really difficult things together. 
And so um, they unintentionally, over time, they, they become a little cliquish. They get into a routine. They get used to each other. They didn't intend to become a clique. It just sort of snuck up on them. Okay? It's an unintentional clique. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether a clique is unintentional or intentional or whether your partiality is intentional or unintentional. It's sinful. James says, you are committing sin. Now, maybe you have just developed a prejudice against a certain race or a people of a certain age or a certain sector of society, and maybe that prejudice wasn't intentional. It just sort of snuck in. Okay, Or maybe it's something that you grew up with, and it's just been a part of you for so long that you haven't even considered it to be a problem. Well, James would say... Snap out of it, because it is. He has some very strong words for us in verse 10. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It can be very easy to rationalize our prejudices, and our partiality. We tell ourselves it's not that bad. Let's imagine for a minute that you've got a two-parent, well-groomed, hip couple with children, and they walk into your church. And at the same time, you've got a poor single mom. She's young. Kids, four kids in tow. And you just happen to be more attentive to that hip couple. Or maybe instead you just gush and fall all over the really popular girl while you just um, ignore the young teenager. And you think to yourself, oh, so what? What's the big deal? I mean, it's not like I'm uh, committing adultery. It's not like I'm cheating on my husband. It's not like I'm lying or it's not like I'm stealing. And James would come along and say, snap out of it. You have dishonored the single mother. You have dishonored the teenager. You're a transgressor and not just of partiality, but of the whole law. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I've discovered that a very popular explanation for this verse is the example of the broken window. All right, let's say that your neighbor has a big, gorgeous um, picture window in the back of their house, and you have a budding baseball player, a child, and he uh, throws the ball and it breaks their window. And so you and the son go to the neighbors and you apologize profusely and you explain to her, we are going to pay for the damages. Do not worry about a thing. And then you proceed to write out a check for $200 and you hand it to them. And they say, uh, excuse me, but uh, that's a $5,000 window. And you say, I know, but 
he just broke a part of it. So I'm just paying for the part that I'm responsible for. And your neighbor says, well, wait a minute. Your son broke the whole window. Your son is a window breaker. (laughs) He has broken the whole window. Okay, here's our next point. To show favoritism, number 12, to show favoritism is to become a transgressor of the whole law. In many ways, this is a good summary. You could circle the word whole law and draw some arrows up above to some of those um, previous points because to show favoritism is to sin against the whole character of God. It's to oppose the gospel. It's to oppose the royal law. When we show partiality, we transgress against all those things. So we've just been smacked. What do we do? What's the remedy? What does James want us to do? We'll take a look at verse 12. He says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He says, I want you to live like people that are going to have to give an account for their lives, who will one day have all your good deeds passed through the fire, who will one day stand before Jesus and have to give an account for every careless word. That's how I want you to live. James has been helping us to see our sin so that we will have a right appreciation for God's mercy. Take a look at verse 13. He says this, For judgment is without mercy, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Favoritism is the opposite of mercy. Okay, and James is saying that if you have received mercy in your life, then your life will, will display mercy. Okay, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you know what it is like to be forgiven, if you know what it is like to be a helpless beggar, in need of mercy, then you're going to show mercy. You're not going to discriminate against another beggar. You won't be partial. You'll show mercy. And if you don't, well, then your faith is not passing the test. Here is our last point. We counter our partiality by realizing our own depravity and need for mercy. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, I know the world has so much division and is filled with so much favoritism and partiality. Would you help your church, would you help us, your people, uh, to not act like the world? Would you help us to um, display the gospel properly? Father, we thank you. We thank you that your word is so relevant, and we praise you for it. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, a quick announcement. And Tammy, I want to make sure I'm right. We, we have no abide next week on the 12th, 
okay? Abide is not, not next, the 12th, we will not meet. We will come back and meet on the 19th. Now, um, I want you to keep going through your books, okay? You're going to do it for even the week that we don't meet, do your lesson, and then when you come back here, we're going to be working on the lesson that has to do with the tongue. So I think it's like the second lesson that you'll have. So uh, we meet again March 19th. Enjoy your week off.